Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Clausen, and today I have Britt Anderson on with us. She is a women's health nurse practitioner who has stepped into the calling of supporting women in healing their mind, body, and heart. She is deeply passionate about empowering her clients to be the stewards of their own health and connect to their inner wisdom. Welcome to the show today, Britt. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I would love for you to dive a little bit um, into your own personal journey and how you kind of got into the helping women support women in their own fertility journey and their own um, community building journey. Hmm. I feel like this could go in so many directions because what is it? We, you know, we learn what we you know, most need to know for ourselves. And, you know, my journey, I feel like really started in nursing school. I had never planned on becoming a nurse. It just kind of one thing led to another, and it just was the path that I was put on and I'm super grateful for it. But, um, I was sitting in nursing school or in a nursing school class one day, and we were talking about, it was our mental health lecture. And we were talking about eating disorders and I kind of sat there and thought, Oh no, I think I, I think I actually have bulimia. I had been binging and purging and I, that was my way of coping with the enormous amount of stress I was under. I was a college athlete as well as in nursing school. It was basically told you're going to have to choose one or the other. And I was like, Oh no, I'm just going to do it. Um, so that was really challenging. So long story short, um, my mom took me to our family doctor, Um, it was a practice where I had actually never met this person before. And so she took me there when I got home from school for the summer and I go into this office and it's this really beautiful physician. She like totally looks so put together. And, and, you know, I felt like I just needed to just unload to her, just tell her all of my problems. So I'm like sharing everything that's going on and in tears. And at the end, she just kind of looks at me and says, huh, well, I don't really know what to do with you. So I'm going to go ahead and prescribe you this antidepressant and you should come back in eight weeks and we'll increase your dose. And I just sat there in shock. I was like, this is all you're going to offer. I just like poured my heart out to you, telling me all of my, I'll tell you all of my woes and my struggles. And that's all you have to offer me. And I just felt in that moment, like I never, ever want a patient in my care to feel how you just made me feel like I have no other choice. All I can do is take the medication. So I'm not knocking medication by any means. I certainly have prescribed plenty of antidepressant medication, uh, in my time as a provider. However, I, I just know there's so much more. So I just knew intuitively, like, this is not the answer. I'm going to go ahead and take this. I think I ended up taking it for about eight weeks and it just didn't make me feel great. And that really set me on this path to holistic functional medicine. I ended up finding through my own studies that I actually have some genetic predisposition towards depression. And when I supplement with B vitamins, I actually see a huge improvement in my mood. And, you know, I started breathwork practices and yoga and like all of these things that like, why was none of this presented to me? Right. Um, and so that's really, really what got me started. If we, if we go back to the very, very beginning of, of the journey. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is something that I, unfortunately I've ran into many times with clients as well is that here's your depression medicine. And, you know, people don't like being on it. A lot of the people that I've talked to have come out to me as well with Ayurveda. And so I can, I can see that as, um, you know, being something that we need to switch and just how you had said the yoga, the breath work, um, I kind of want to pull those strings. So I just read a study the other, it just came out, I think last week, and they were saying that meditation 
has been proven to be just as beneficial as depression meds. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is huge. You know, and it's this big, you know, huge journal that published this. And so I would love for you to kind of chat a little bit about that, how that helped you in your own personal journey and maybe how you incorporate that with clients. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing for me is just, I needed to build up my toolbox. Right. And this is something that I very often share with my clients is not every practice is right for everybody. I remember the first time I went to a yoga class and I just wanted to die. First of all, I was, um, an athlete doing a very high intensity sport. I played water polo and I was a swimmer. So for me to like sit still and come to my breath, like was so foreign to me because I was so used to pushing through the pain and you just work harder and push harder. So I just, I remember like being ready to crawl out of my skin the first time I went to yoga. So for me, I think I started with journaling. That's like really what kind of like opened my eyes to this whole world of like getting present in the moment. And just starting to tune in because I was so used to overriding my body signals because you're just naturally like used to being in pain when you're an athlete, unfortunately. Um, but then from there, once I kind of, you know, dipped my toes in the water, I was able to expand my practice. So then I could do, you know, a few minutes of a guided meditation and I could do a few minutes of more intense yoga and then eventually was able to work my way into more like restorative practices. And so I think that's, the, the biggest piece, um, that I have to share with clients is let's just build up your toolbox and see what works for you because not everybody is going to, um, you know, gravitate towards a 30 minute meditation every day and that's okay. Yeah. I love that. And that's the, I can totally relate from being a three sport athlete in college as well. And the first time I did yoga, mm-hmm. a yin yoga class, I was like, what is this? Oh, <laughs> I was like, I have to sit here for how many more minutes? I'm like, oh my gosh. And now, I mean, I love it. Like that is, I I teach yin and yoga nidra and restorative and those are my babies. And I'm like, that's so funny that like I, it, it took me years though to get there and to slowly get there and not just kind of shockwave my system into a practice like that. So I think that's a really key thing that you're sharing. Cause sometimes when we do try those practices and they do seem overwhelming and they can be more jarring and um, override our nervous systems and they're not, that's not going to be helpful then. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I had to start, I started with like hot vinyasa (laughs) yoga. So I knew I was getting it. It was like more of a workout. Right. And then from there I was able to like sort of work my way into, you know, the restorative. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would love to know a little bit more because you tap, you talk a lot about womb space and tapping into the womb space for healing. So if people are kind of new to that, like maybe the lingo in general, womb space, what does that kind of mean? And how can people maybe connect to their inner wisdom a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, I have been on this journey. I've always loved working with women specifically. I knew I was very called to work with women and, uh, and babies. And I felt very called to the motherhood transition, even well before, you know, I had babies of my own. I ended up, you know, I was a women's health NP and ended up getting doula training and intended births and taught childbirth ed classes and all this stuff years before I had babies of my own. And, you know, over the last probably five-ish years, I've really stepped into understanding how much trauma we carry in our sacral chakra in that womb space. So, you know, if we're talking literally like your uterus ovaries, that pelvic bowl, all of the space there, um, the sacrum, the pelvic floor, and we just carry so much as women. We 
have gone through our own traumas, many of us in our lives, whether we have experienced sexual trauma or there's a lot of um, even like religious shame based trauma that's put on us. And then some of it's not even ours. It's this ancestral trauma that we have carried through our lineage of being made to feel that being a woman is somehow something to be ashamed of which is just create, you know, we're, we're the source of original sin, right? If you want to believe that version of things. Uh, and so regardless of whether or not you have actually experienced it in your life, you carry that. So, so much of the work that I have um, stepped into is really just helping to facilitate tapping into the womb space, because what I find is that many of us are very disconnected from that place uh, because only when we really tap into it, can we experience healing for ourselves and for our lineage. And, you know, that trauma can manifest as really heavy, painful periods. It can manifest as, um, just this feeling of disconnection. The womb space energetically is the source of all creation. So regardless of fertility or wanting to conceive a baby, that is like your creative life force within your body for both men and women. And so being disconnected from that can really just, um, play a big role in feeling just disconnected in general. And, um, yeah. And so then of course, when we come to fertility challenges, like often that can be a sign of a disconnection from the womb space. So just getting people to put their hands like over their womb space is often like a radical act, which is so fascinating to me. And so sometimes it's as simple as that. It's actually getting the brain to recognize like that place in your body and facilitating the breath to actually get all the way down and fill up that pelvic bowl. Yeah. It's so interesting. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's something that I can relate to. I remember in yoga classes, I was like, Oh, and I think probably too, like the belly, it's a sensitive area. Like people don't always like to touch themselves there. And so that makes sense too. You're like, you, all sorts of feelings come up. And so I can totally relate to that when I was younger and, you know, when I was like, Oh, the, the body shaming that I put on yourself, which I think a lot of us do because that's how we were, you know, we grew up and stuff. And so, um, I think that's, that's something that I've seen a lot too, and it's common. And it's something that, you know, I think just having that practice of putting those hands there and breathing is huge. And that can be hard. And then seeing some like a therapist after, if you need to, Mm -hmm. and, you know, having the stuff that comes up. I love that you said that because one of the things that I always work on, like the very first thing I work on with all of my clients is, is proper breath. Um, because most of us are very used to this breathing up in our chest, using all those accessory muscles, which are, that's not our primary breathing muscle. We need to use diaphragm. And most people that I work with are not able to actually expand the breath all the way down into the pelvic floor. They're so disconnected from that. And so one of the things I talk to them about is to imagine a toddler. You will never see a toddler sucking in their belly. They're so proud of that beautiful round belly. And that's literally how we were designed to breathe and to move. And it's really only about school age when we are stuck in a desk all day and we start having that, um, you know, really terrible posture that sort of prevents the diaphragm from moving optimally. That's when we start to get these dysregulated breathing patterns. And then of course, little girls are told from a very young age, oh, well, you suck in your belly to make yourself look thinner, which totally cuts off the diaphragm's ability to actually expand and then, you know, uh, get the entire core to move the way it is designed to during breathing. Uh, it's just really fascinating when we start to peel back all those layers. Yeah. I mean, and that leads to like, that was part of my reason for constipation for so many years of just sucking in of not realizing like, oh my gosh, I'm 
everything is in and it's getting stuck. So some, I mean, that breath, it really does play a huge factor in many different systems in our bodies that we don't always pay attention to and, you know, being able to regulate our breath. And, um, I would like you to touch a little bit just because I had one of my yoga teachers, I had submitted a meditation and she was like, Oh, make sure you tell people where the diaphragm is, because sometimes we, we say it as professionals. And then we just think people know where that is. So could you tap a little bit into where the diaphragm is in case mm-hmm. people are hearing this, but they're not exactly sure where the diaphragm is located. Yeah. So the diaphragm is a flat muscle. It's right under your lungs. And so when we want to, um, really use the diaphragm, I love to put my hands right around the base of my rib cage and feel that expansion. So as you inhale, diaphragm is going to move down and expand outward. And then as you exhale, it comes back to that resting position right under your lungs. And what's so fascinating is that diaphragm and pelvic floor actually look very similar and they move the same way. So on that inhale, diaphragm and pelvic floor move down and expand out, relax. And then that exhale, they come back to that resting position and they should be moving together because that really engages every muscle within the core for proper movement and function, which is really cool. And also vital for giving birth. (laughs) Absolutely. And I tell women this all the time. Like if you can learn how to use your diaphragm properly, diaphragm helps facilitate childbirth because it almost comes down and forms like a cap over the top of your uterus and helps to push baby out. Like when you can use your diaphragm during pushing, you're going to be so much more effective. That's something I wish more people talked. I mean, they, they briefly chatted about it when I was pregnant with my son Mm -hmm. and I was still breathing backwards with him. And so I'm like, man, that whole labor, I'm sure it, I mean, it was a long labor to begin with, but I'm like, I'm sure that was part of the problem because I was not breathing the correct way. And I didn't realize how much of a part that played in, you know, having a baby because it's maybe just glossed over and not really emphasized. So, um, this time around, I'm like, I'm much more aware of that. I'm like, okay, hopefully this goes a little smoother. So I want to kind of switch gears into the, um, conception and birthing kind of side of things. So you talk a lot about conscious conception. Um, I would love for you to know, uh, how do you support families along this, um, journey? And, um, that's, I've recommended you actually to a few of people who've reached out to me and I'm like, Brit, she's your gal. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah. So actually my journey into the conception piece really started when I was pretty new in practice. I was working in an integrative functional medicine family practice, and I was seeing a lot of women postpartum and typically I would see them after like second or third baby, not necessarily first, but they would come to me and they would say, you know, I'm exhausted. I can't get anything done. I basically feel like my whole life is falling apart and my OB wants me to just go ahead and take an antidepressant. And I just feel like there's something else that I need to look at. And I would get so frustrated because I would do a very basic like nutrient panel. And these women are so depleted of their B vitamins, of their omegas, of their vitamin D, all of which contribute to our mood and our energy and all these things. And it's like, if we would have just looked at this and and recommended a couple of supplements, like we could really help them feel better and and not just tell them, oh, this is in your head. And this is just part of being a mom and you're just overwhelmed and you need this medication to like get by with your life. So I got to thinking after seeing so many 
of these women and really just hearing the same story over and over. I'm like, man, I really wish I could get to you before you started having babies so that we're not having to dig out of this massive hole postpartum. And that's what really got me interested in, in preconception. And also around that same time, I was thinking about having babies myself and I, and I would get online and, and kind of look around and just see what the pre conception recommendations were. And I just found a lot of information in a lot of different places. And, you know, even I mean, I'm a women's health NP. I did preconception counseling as like part of my practice. And I remember like looking at these couples and being like, well, you know, come off your birth control and maybe start a prenatal vitamin. And if you're not pregnant in a year, come back and we'll do some testing. And like, there's so much more we can, we can be doing. And, and we know that when we really set a solid foundation for health for both partners, it literally changes the health trajectory of the entire family line that's so powerful. And it impacts your grandchildren. Like what an amazing opportunity. And so that's really how I've tried to frame it. Um, because we know that about 50% of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. So like, there's so much opportunity to shift, uh, the health of our families when we actually go into pregnancy, having done even just a little bit of preparation just makes such a big difference. Mm. Yes. That's, I mean, my first one, he was not planned and this one, you know, was, and so I, I, can, yeah. so I can relate to that as well. And I'm like, it went into a much better place. And I talk about Ayurveda, how we have our three to six month protocol yeah. as they like you to go through, which was, you know, mind blowing to me when I went through my Ayurvedic training and I'm like, wow, I've never, I've never heard about this or in the West, we don't talk about that. Um, is that something you recommend? I know you have a length of time. You like to work with people as well. Um, if they're on that journey. Yeah. I say like a minimum of four months would be ideal because it really takes about three months to get nutrient stores up, to balance out hormones. The life cycle of a sperm is about three months. So if we have like a four month window, that's like enough time to really make some significant change. And I am very, very careful about always incorporating the partner into the preconception planning because they contribute 50% of the DNA and sperm DNA is what helps to form the placenta and you know, the metabolic health of dad is more influential than maternal health in regards to the metabolic health of the baby and like their long-term health trajectory, which is crazy. And we, we put so much onus on the female partner, um, when it really needs to be both partners who are doing everything they can to support their health going into pregnancy. And is that something that you do, um, you know, with your couples, you try to have, cause I've had this where, you know, one partner's on board, the other one's not, you know, maybe the male partner's not as yes. hung on making those habit shifts. Uh, how do you kind of balance that in that relationship? Uh, it's always the female partner that seeks me out <laughs> for sure. So what I, I always offer, uh, for the male partner to be on a call with me, because it's so interesting when they are able to see me face to face and, and hear you know, what I have to say, almost always I am able to, you know, get them to at the very least, you know, stop drinking, you know, three drinks a night and maybe take a multivitamin. Like that's huge. If we can do that, I'm so happy. Uh, you know, it, they don't want to hear it from their partner. They need to hear it from someone else. And that's, I mean, that's the same with my husband. He doesn't want to hear what I have to tell him. He wants to hear from someone else. Uh, and then I have a self-paced course. So I'll often tell couples like, Hey, why don't you do my course and do it together and make this a part of like your date night ritual. The videos are like, you know, 20 minutes, 
do that. And then you can discuss what we talked about over dinner. And that can just be a part of your conscious conception planning together. Mm, I love that. So that would be like a great ritual that they could do together. Is there anything else like ritual related that you recommend during that preconception phase? Yeah, I think that, uh, the big focus on connection is so important. And, and I love the, um, the idea of going into preconception as a, as a team, like we're doing this together because that's going to carry over through pregnancy and into your parent, like your parenthood journey starts preconception with the things that you are doing to call in this baby and to set yourselves up for a healthy pregnancy. And then I just feel like that really puts couples in a good place for, the extreme challenges of having a new baby. Cause we know that I think it's something like uh 60% of couples, it might even be higher than that report, like significant dis- dissatisfaction with their relationship in the first year after having a baby, because you know, that's a whirlwind. It's so much, it's completely new dynamic. Um, and most couples really haven't stopped to consider what that's going to look like. And so I even have a section of my course where I give you some critical conversations to start having, before you even get pregnant. Cause you know, when you're pregnant and you're emotional, it's really hard to have some of those big conversations. Like what's, what's childcare going to look like? How are we going to divide up the household duties? Um, what boundaries are we going to set with our in-laws, you know, things like that, that when they come up in the moment, it feels so charged and it's so hard to talk through. But if you had those conversations way back before you even started having babies and then can build on them, I feel like it just eases the transition so much. Yes. And do you have anything with like the postpartum time? So if mamas are struggling or how do you kind of prepare them for that postpartum shift? Cause that's mm-hmm. something again, big in Ayurveda that we're like, that's 42 days. And yes. I am focusing on this time and I did not last time. And I'm like really focused on that because I needed that time, which Sometimes you don't know the first time mom, you're just like, yeah, it's going to be, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And then once you, once you've been through it, I mean, I had a friend who sent sent me a text and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing. Her son is also older. You know, we're both have like seven-year-olds. And so she was like, yeah, this time I'm setting myself up for success versus the last time, which you're just like, okay, here it is. What do we do? Oh my gosh. I know. I know. So I had my, my third baby is two. And I find, I feel like my, um, third time around was like, I finally got it right. I finally (laughs) figured out all the things that I did wrong. I mean, my first two were 19 months apart. My second was a surprise. So they're so close together that like, I couldn't really have the postpartum settle down after the second one, because I was chasing a toddler and tandem nursing and doing all that. So anyway, with my last baby, I was so intentional. Um, and so what I love to do with my clients is meet with them usually like the early third trimester to really solidify a plan. Because I have found that with a lot of the women and couples that I work with, you know, they, they get pregnant and, um, they're very good about planning for birth, but I have to remind them birth is one day. It is one day. And then you've got to take care of this baby and yourself for, you know, the rest of your life. So postpartum is forever. Can we put more attention on this postpartum period? And so, you know, we come up with a plan. We have like a list of tools that we're going to implement for postpartum. Like what can we do in regards to getting, um, you know, help? Can your mom or your mother-in-law come stay? Can you hire someone? What are meals going to look like? Can we do a bunch of freezer meals that they're ready to go? Um, what are supplements going to look like? I'm also a really big advocate for, you know, if you're not symptomatic per se, 
I like to do labs around six months postpartum just to check in with nutrient levels and thyroid and just kind of see where all that stuff is because postpartum is a very common time for things like autoimmune disease to manifest. And I want to make sure that we are replenishing all of those stores that get so depleted so that we're not setting ourselves up for these types of issues. If mamas are very symptomatic, then we have a plan in place. Like if, you know, if you are just experiencing extreme fatigue, extreme hair loss, you just feel like you can't get your footing. We're going to do labs a lot earlier so that we can catch, um, maybe it's a postpartum thyroiditis, which is a really common, um, issue that women will experience. And so I, I just, I like them to know like who to call what and, and know where their resources are, um, so that they're not, you know, struggling in the moment and they don't know where to go and they're not really getting a lot of help from their, you know, their provider, unfortunately. Mm, yes. What about, um, relationships and building that community? Cause that postpartum period, it can feel lonely depending on, you know, where you're at. Yeah. I mean, especially coming out of the last two and a half years, I, I just feel so deeply. I mean, I, I found out I was pregnant, um, at the beginning of 2020. So we went into lockdown and I was like, what, 12 weeks pregnant. So for me being a third time mama, I didn't mind it so much. I was like, this is kind of nice. I'm just going to like burrow in my cave, but I just can't imagine. Uh, I had a lot of, of clients who were, um, brand new first time mamas or brand new pregnant when we went into lockdown and it was just, you know, not getting to have face-to-face visits with providers. And it was just so hard. So I think that all of us realized from the pandemic, even those of us like B who are actually pretty introverted, we all realize like we really do need community. And especially as we navigate the motherhood transition, because we were never meant to do this alone. Like traditionally you were surrounded by family and friends and a village. And while you were birthing your baby and breastfeeding and recovering from birth, someone else was doing the laundry. Someone else was doing the cooking. Someone else was taking care of the other kids. You weren't having to manage you know, going to work every day and pumping and taking care of the household. It's just, there's too much to manage. And so I think that when we are plugged into community, that is so incredibly important for our mental health, if nothing else, but also just to help. I mean, we can help each other in so many ways by sharing advice and wisdom, especially for, you know, the newer mamas, but we all need that. I don't care what season of motherhood you're in. We all need to feel held by community. Hmm. And what would you recommend for people, you know, maybe community online versus seeing people in person? Have you noticed a difference or a shift into what people are, you know, kind of getting out of those experiences? I think the pandemic made us get really creative with how to build community. And I definitely think there's so many options for, for online spaces. I, I think that nothing replaces the energy of being in person. I think, I mean, I used to help facilitate a circle, um, a postpartum circle at a yoga studio I was teaching at, uh, where you would just come and breastfeed your baby. You would just sit around in a circle and you would eat lunch together and you breastfeed your baby and like whatever came up, came up. And there were always these really beautiful conversations. So I think that's great, but I definitely think you can get a lot from online communities. I ended up starting uh, an online community this year specifically for, you know, my clients who had kind of worked with me one-on-one, gotten pregnant. Now we're navigating motherhood. And I just, I, I just see so much value and them getting to interact and learn from each other. So I really wanted to create a container for that. And it's, and it's been lovely and it's a great place for me to get to continue to connect with them and teach, but then also they get to hold and and be there for each other. Mm. 
That's great. And especially if you have, like, I have a friend whose, you know, son has autism and it's pretty severe. She's like, we would love to meet in person, but it's not going to happen because we're chasing after our kids. Like if we ever try to do a park date, it's just not going to happen. It's not fun. It's not relaxing. And it stresses everyone out. And so she was like this online community of just we know what each other are going through. And I was like, Oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's great. Cause I kind of had asked her, you know, I'm like, besides me, do you have anyone else that you can kind of talk with? And she had said this and I was like, this is wonderful. And so I think people are listening, you know, no matter what you're going through, I'm sure there's online spaces now that can have those communities, you know, to have yeah. that kind of whoever you want to plug into, um, you can yeah. kind of plug into them. Yeah. And also, you know, it is really hard to get out of the house when you've got little ones. It is really hard. And when you have a baby who has an unpredictable napping schedule and eating schedule, like I totally get not wanting to do that. So yes, being able to just hop on your computer or your phone and, and feel plugged into community is so great because unfortunately, again, going back to the way that, um, our culture is kind of set up now, we're not automatically plugged into these communities. Many of us, you know, live far from families. Like my family's all in California. I'm in Tennessee. That was really hard as I was navigating new motherhood. Um, and so there's a, a feeling of isolation, I think, amongst a lot of women, especially as they become moms. So any opportunity that we have to seek out and get plugged into community, I think is really valuable. Now I want to flip it completely on the opposite <laughs> spectrum, because this is also another complaint, you know, besides, you know, having those community in those tight-lipped, you know, tight relationships is alone time. And then we also crave that and just having some space, especially when you have young ones who are like, I can't go to the bathroom. People are opening the door constantly. I'm just trying to take a bath. How do you help people just kind of have that alone time or just some space for themselves every day? Yeah. You know, that's, it's really tricky. And I think one of the, the biggest things that I have, I have to remind people of and myself is that it doesn't have to look a certain way and it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So like, it doesn't have to be that you have an hour to yourself even just carving out 15 minutes and being intentional about it. Like you literally put it on your calendar. I'm going to go sit in my car in the driveway for 15 minutes by myself. Just that very act and the intention of it has so much power. Um, So, you know, sometimes it looks different right now. I mean, my two-year-old is still nursing. He was sick last week. So he was up nursing like a newborn during the night. And so now he has this lovely habit of getting up with me at six in the morning, whereas I was usually able to sneak out of bed and I would do like my 15 to 20 to 30 minutes, whatever I got, you know, upstairs in my office and my quiet with my candles and all the things. Um, so that hasn't happened. So my husband has been getting up. I hand the baby to him and say, Hey, I'm going upstairs to my office, 15 minutes. Like my husband can handle them for 15 minutes. And I think the biggest thing I see with women is that we won't ask We won't ask for what we actually need because we are like afraid to take up space. We're afraid to be demanding. No, like you need to claim that for yourself because you are no good to anyone when you are just running on fumes and so depleted. And again, 10, 15 minutes, it's not a lot of time, but it has such a massive impact because you set that intention and took that time for yourself. Mm, yes, totally. And that's sometimes the hardest thing to do. I mean, myself as a pitta, I'm like that support, like an asking for support, being like, I need help. That can be like really mm-hmm. hard for a lot of us to do and admit. And so I love that you, you know, trusting the partner, having, uh, you know, parents, in-laws, whoever come over, um, yes. that is also vital to your own mental health for sure. Like, even if you think you can do it, don't just, just get more help in place than you actually think you need, because then you can always like back off of it. 
Um, but I think so often we're like, no, no, I got this. I'll just figure it out. And no, no, just have that help in place so that it's available to you and you can utilize it instead of just, you know, continuing to dig yourself in a deeper hole and feeling more and more depleted and just, and then you start to feel resentful because you're exhausted and your needs are being met. And yeah. And that's not good for anybody. Yeah. And then health starts to go downhill. That's often when I see people like the stress habit loop and just kind of connected and just can't seem to get out of that. So yeah, having those places, I mean, having those things in place, I think are key. Mm-hmm. So I would love to know um, if people are wanting to work with you, where can they connect with you? What's your website? Any, any social media? Yeah. So my website is a And I'm very active on social media. It's just Brit B R I T T E Anderson. And I have a link right in my profile. That's got uh, a little application. You can fill out if you want to work one-on-one with me, but I also have a lot of programs that are self-paced that people can go through. My preconception program is, it was like my second baby. Um, I love that program. It's, I mean, uh, dozens and dozens of couples have gone through it and I I think it's a really great one to start with. If you're like, we want to start, you know, thinking about a pregnancy, but we don't even know where to begin. That's really, you know, why I developed it. I developed it for myself and, and my husband and, and have been able to share that with a lot of couples now. Awesome. And that can be for anyone, even if they've already had one kid planning mm-hmm. for that second one too. You probably see this, but I very often uh, get second time mamas who are like, I didn't really plan the first time around. I didn't really do all the things the first time around. Cause I didn't know. And this time I want it to be different. That's what I very often see. Yes. Yep. Same or struggling that second time to conceive. Yes. Yes. Or the first time, maybe it was fast. The second time it's a struggle. So I've seen that an influx of that as well. So yes. that would be one to check out. And I know I, I had actually, um, it won't air until January, but I had a gal who was a doctor come on and say that, um, men's fertility, um, is going to be an issue. She said in 20, the projections, I think it was like 2026. And she said it's about 60%, um, potentially are going to be infertile. And I'm like, what? yeah, that it's is insane. Nuts. I'm like, it's right now down. she said it's at 30%. And I'm yes. like, oh my gosh, like that's not very many years and it's going to double. So, I mean, that's where I think for them, the male partners, um, and that's, that's something that I think is key too, just to not know that it's gotta be both partners on board for this and, um, making those changes my husband, he did, and he, he cleaned up his diet and like, I did not tell him to, he did that all on his own. And, um, you know, it was kind of him just deciding, okay, I got to get clean. You know, he was eating too much fast food and sugar and clean it up. And so like little things like that. Yeah. And but so also, I, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go, you go ahead. I was going to say, you know, uh, for men, it's really interesting because their sperm, you know, has a life cycle about three months so they can regenerate and their sperm quality can absolutely improve with these lifestyle habits. Whereas for women, you know, you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have. And so, you know, we can support egg quality, but, but men can really have a huge impact on their sperm health. And I would say for the mamas, especially the mamas of little boys, you know, it's so important for us to do our best to share healthy habits with them because around puberty is actually one of the points that can really have a big impact on their lifelong fertility. So, you know, around puberty is when boys want to start eating all the fast food and all the junk. And so if we can do all we can to help them lead the cleanest lifestyle possible and try to instill these good habits, that actually will make it more likely for them to not face fertility challenges as adults. Wow. That's good to know. I will keep that in mind for my son. I know, right? I have three boys. So, you know, that's like (laughs) forefront of my mind. Gosh, I know. So 
before you know it, that's going to be, I mean, it'll be here. So I know, I know, I know. They do grow Mm -hmm. up fast, even though it seems long in the beginning, but they grow, they grow up fast. They do. Yeah. So I just have one final question for you, Britt. I would love for you to throw out a weekly challenge to all the listeners Mm -hmm. this week. So what would you like everyone to try? Oh, you know, we are now in the season of longer hours of darkness and it's really easy to kind of feel down and yucky. So my challenge for you is to get out in the sunlight within the first 30 minutes of waking. That means like not through a window, like get outside, even if it's 10 minutes, drink your coffee out there, but that sunlight on your skin, on your face is what triggers the rise of cortisol in the morning, which we need to feel awake and alert. And it can really help support your circadian rhythm, which is great for mood and hormone balance and and all the things. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom with us. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, and go out there and spread your peaceful power.